All right, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans, Romans chapter 9. Uh, we're going to pick up uh, on verse 30, and then we'll go all the way through chapter 10, which is verse 21. Um, like I mentioned uh, kind of in the opening, in our last chapter, when we were looking at Romans chapter 9, the first, uh, first big portion of that, the first 29 verses, um, Paul was making the argument that, you know, you have Israel, and, and it's a question about Israel. You have Israel, God's chosen people, God's covenant people. Um, why is it that they aren't being saved? And in the first century, they weren't being saved. And, and yes, there were uh, Jewish people being saved. Uh, but by and large, the majority of people that were being saved were Gentile. They were anything but a Jew. Um, and so why is that? If they are God's chosen people, if Jesus was sent to them, if all the promises were given to them, if they had received the law, why is it that they were not being saved? And the answer that Paul gives in chapter 9 is God chooses who is saved. He, choos, he chose Abraham. Um, he chose uh, Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. That God has a choice in all of these things. That God is working out his plan and he is saving who must be saved in order to fulfill his plan. And so it was all about God's choice, about God's election, about his predestination. And, and so it goes through that. And, you know, at the, at the end of that, it makes us ask the question, does this mean that people have no free will? People just puppets being controlled. Are we robots? We do what we um, are told to do or you know, do what God makes us do. Uh, and have, have, you know, some people, are they just lost because God didn't choose them? Is, is, is that how this is going? And if that were the case, I could see how people would say, well, God must be a very cruel God create certain people that he would not save that would just be sent to eternal torment. Um, but this passage has to be preached right after the other passage because it shows us the other side of the coin. This shows us that there is a choice. Paul puts a heavy emphasis on this passage um, on the human responsibility related to salvation. So just as much as it is God's choice and what God does um, has an impact on who is saved, there is also the personal responsibility to respond to Jesus Christ, to respond with faith, to believe in Him, to confess His name. All of those things are very, very important. They are part of our responsibility. So we will find that there is only one acceptable response to the gospel. That is how Paul lays this out. The Lord's plan of salvation demands faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So while this does seem like a whole separate conversation than the gospel and justification, righteousness that Paul's been in for the first eight chapters, it really is the same thing about salvation. It really is about how we're saved. And he's explaining how the Israelites can be saved how Gentiles are being saved, and, and, and everything about how this actually comes to pass. And so the sermon in the sentence is this. Jesus offers a righteousness that is lasting, but it can only be obtained by faith. So that's an important thing that we have to recognize is that, yes, God offers righteousness. Yes, the Israelites were seeking righteousness, but there's a difference between what the Israelites were seeking and what God's offering. The only way for us to get at what God is offering is through faith. And so we'll see that as we go ahead. So I want to read you um, Romans chapter 9, verse 30, all the way through Romans chapter 10, verse 21. It says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? 
Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am lying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For God is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Okay, so let's get into this, and and I'm just going to divide it into two parts. One, works that fail, and two, uh, faith that saves. And so the works that fail is is all works. Any kind of work that we do trying to gain salvation, that's a work that's going to fail. So Paul begins this this idea that he he starts in Romans chapter 9 with another one of his what shall we say then questions. Now, typically, when he says, what shall we say then, he then presents like an argument that he's going to disagree with. So he presents that argument, and then he disproves it. But in this case, instead, he kind of continues his thought. He just uses it as a way to introduce the fact that the Gentiles are being saved, even though they didn't have the law, much less follow the law that God gave. So he's asking basically a rhetorical question. 
Um, or instead of asking a rhetorical question, he, he's making it as, as, as his transition. So this issue that the Gentiles are being saved, even though they weren't following the law, and Israel is not being saved, even though they were following the law, that does seem to create a contradiction. Why would God save people who weren't even seeking him, who weren't even following him, um, and, and leave people lost who were seeking him and who were following his law? Why is that? See, Israel... Uh, they didn't obtain righteousness, but the Gentiles did. And it's not about what they were following or what they were doing or what works they were accomplishing. It was about how they pursued righteousness. You see, the Gentiles, because they did not know the law, did not have the law, when they heard the gospel, all they were told was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They did that. They were saved. But Israel, on the other hand, was full of all kinds of things in their mind. And so they knew that they had to obey this law. They had to keep this ritual. They had to celebrate this uh, festival. They had to do all these things. And so when they heard gospel, when they heard good news, when they heard salvation, when they heard acceptance faith, that was a difficult thing for them. That was something that they really couldn't do. So Paul has to square with the fact that there are people outside of the covenant community that are being saved while people inside the covenant community, the covenant community are not being saved. And the answer is found in how Israel was pursuing their righteousness. Israel was not being saved because they were not pursuing righteousness through faith. That was how God commanded that they should pursue righteousness and they simply were not doing it. Paul uses the Old Testament to explain that Israel has stumbled over the stumbling stone placed by God. Now, the stumbling stone that he refers to, that's Jesus. Um, and, and, and Jesus even identified himself as the stumbling stone, the block that the builders rejected, this Old Testament idea of the stumbling stone that was placed in Zion. It's going to cause people to fall. You know, every culture has, ha has found some reason to stumble over Jesus. So let's go back to the Jews that were alive and were kind of like the opponents to Jesus in that day. Jesus, through his teaching, claimed and, and through his miracles proved that he was God. They couldn't handle that. That's, that's why they, they believed that he was a blasphemer. And so that was their stumbling block was who Jesus was. Well, for the, the Gentiles, the Greeks, as the Bible might refer to them, those folks, they didn't have a problem believing that somebody could be God. Their Caesar was God. They had multiple gods, so the fact that, a, that, that the person they could see could be a god, that, that wasn't the difficult thing for them. For them, it was all about the resurrection from the dead. They believed that when someone was dead, they were dead, they were gone. And so they didn't really believe in the resurrection part. That was the stumbling block for them. Well, you take the Jews that Paul is now speaking about, and, and, and their problem is not necessarily the claims of Christ that he was God. Their problem specifically is the fact that that Jesus is offering a salvation based on faith, not on works. You see, their whole religion was about what they're supposed to do. They had to have certain ceremonies. They had to make certain sacrifices. They had to live a certain way. They had to eat certain foods and not eat other certain foods. There were all kinds of things that they had to do, works that they had to do. And so this idea of a faith-based salvation was contrary to everything that they believed in, everything that they had been taught all their lives. They had to work for everything they had. And now here comes preachers declaring that you just have to believe. That was something they couldn't do. And that was the stumbling block. And so that's what Paul says. They stumbled over the stumbling block. And Jesus has been that to every single generation in every single culture. 
You might look at the culture today and say that Jesus provides absolute truth and our culture can't accept that. Our culture is always questioning. Our culture is always challenging. Our culture is always trying to expand what the meaning of the word truth actually is. And for that, they stumble over Jesus. Because Jesus makes it plain. He makes it simple. Follow him. He lived a life without sin. And that life was for our salvation. He died a death that he didn't deserve to die so that he could take our place. He was buried again so that he could take our place. Then he was resurrected so he could lead us and show us the way. He made it simple. But he says believe. He doesn't say work. He doesn't say earn it. He certainly doesn't say expand upon it. He just says believe it. And that's a challenge for a lot of people and especially in our generation today. So when we look at this stumbling block, what we see is that the Jews, the Gentiles, everybody stumbles over who Jesus is or some part of the gospel. Um, but, you know, the, Israel stumbled over that. They, they couldn't deal with the fact that he was offering a free salvation. So when we move to chapter 10, right at the beginning of it, Paul reaffirms that, that his desire and his prayer for Israel so, yes, he's saying some things about Israel. He's saying that, you know, part of this is, is God's plan. Part of this is their stubbornness. But I still love them. I still pray for them. He wants to make that clear. So the people of Israel, he says they have a zeal for God. And I would tell you, just based on, you know, studying this and, and knowing some other cultures, they had a zeal for God that very few other cultures have duplicated for any religion. It's fair to say that every bit of what you would call Jewish culture is somehow connected back to Scripture. Every single thing they did is connected to Scripture in some way. Every, every meal, the way that they ate their meals, so you think about the foods that they could and couldn't eat based on Scripture. Um, I ever told you all that they can't have a bacon cheeseburger? That's rough, isn't it? And that's because of Scripture. Like they, they believe that that, that that is obedient to Scripture. That's things that they can't do, things that they can't have. Those are tough things. But everything songs that they sing, the way they dress, everything about them was based on Scripture. Can you imagine the power of a community of believers who everything about their identity was based on God? Like there was nothing that we did or nothing that, that was part of us that, you know, whether it be in our personal lives or in our public lives, that, that wasn't based on God. Can you imagine how powerful that would be? Think about how many other things are part of our identity and part of our culture Part, things that, that we say, well, okay, so that's not necessarily from the Bible, but it's not bad. Well, the Jews didn't have anything that wasn't from the Bible at that time. That, that was their culture. And so Paul said they had a zeal. They definitely had a zeal. But he said that it wasn't coming from understanding. It doesn't mean that they were foolish. It just means that they didn't understand about Jesus. They didn't understand what God was saying about Jesus. And, and they didn't understand the Old Testament passages that proclaim Jesus. They didn't understand the promises about Jesus. They just didn't have a place of understanding. They had this almost, it wasn't robotic, but it was very meticulous obedience to the law. It's like a country of OCD people just following the law without any kind of regard for what it might mean in the big picture. Jesus is that big picture for them. So he said they have this zeal. And, and I, you can almost hear in his voice, even though he doesn't say it, just imagine what would happen if people with this zeal were following Jesus. Just imagine what might would happen. So he certainly sees that and he sees what they have. 
Everything about their culture was centered around God. So if imagine they had um, that kind of power in their lives. So, you know, the Jews, they had a passion for God. It was just their understanding. Um, it was really because they didn't understand how God planned to provide righteousness. Yes, the Bible presents a bunch of laws, and certainly laws that you have to follow. But they didn't understand that God's plan for righteousness in their lives wasn't about what they did. Israel was trying to build their own righteousness through works. You know, that's a very human way of doing things because we don't understand the concept of a free gift. We've been raised to know, and I'm sure somebody's told each of us at some point in our lives, there's nothing that's free. Everything has a catch. And, you know, in human terms, that's, that's very true. There, there is nothing that's free. There's always a catch. I can remember as a kid, and I'm sure they still make these commercials and do them, but, you know, during the middle of the show you're watching, they go to a commercial, and they're selling you something. And, I mean, as a kid, like, I didn't see how you could say no to some of these advertisements. It was only $20.99, or it was only $19.99, I guess what they would say. And it would say plus shipping and handling, but they didn't put that on there, so you had no idea how much that was. And it was this great product, and it was something that you absolutely had to have. How could you possibly say no to something like that? I had no idea how you could say no to something like that. But then when, you know, I would say, hey, you know, obviously we've got to buy this. Like, I wrote down the phone number for you. There's always a catch, and that's what my parents told me. There's always some catch. It's never a good, it's either bad quality, or there's, it's, you know, seven low payments of $29.99, whatever it might be. There's always some catch, something that you don't recognize when you first see it. And so we are, we are trained to think there's some catch. To say that God is going to adopt us into his family, he is going to remove all of the sin from our lives. He is going to give us life on this earth, it's better than what we could hope for. And he's going to give us eternal life. That we are going to live with him forever. That he is going to elevate us from the position of, 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 of really condemned people all the way up to the place where we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Rulers even. And all we got to do is believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You tell a, a savvy American that today and we're going to say, what's the catch? That's just what we're going to say. And, and that's the thing with the Israelites, too. They didn't understand free. They could not grasp that because they hadn't seen free things either. You know, there's a famous uh, sermon called Payday Someday, and obviously that, that's actually a good sermon, but the concept is we believe everything's going to have consequences. We're taught from an early age that the things that we do that are bad have bad consequences. Things that we do that are good have good consequences. And, and, we can, and, and it's true wisdom. I mean, it's good ideas, but it certainly doesn't apply to the gospel. Try as we might, we will never work our way into heaven. And let me just say this. If there was one person that could live a righteous life, that could do all the works that God demanded, and they could earn their way into heaven, then God would demand that of every one of us. Because if one person could do it, anybody could do it. But it was impossible. It remains impossible. And only through Jesus, only through Jesus can we get there. The righteousness of Jesus saves, but the righteousness of man fails. It is only his righteousness that saves us. So while Jesus was on this earth, he told us that he would fulfill the law. He said that, that don't think that I came to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
That was his purpose. That was his goal. So when we look at um, chapter 10, verse 4, it says, For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. There have been people that have taken that verse and said, well, that means that we don't have to obey the law anymore. That's not what this means. That's not what's being said here. Jesus is going to fulfill the law. Nowhere in the New Testament are we taught to ignore the law of the Old Testament, but we have to understand that Jesus brings a new path to righteousness. So Jesus brings an end to seeking righteousness through the law, and he establishes the path of righteousness to everyone who believes. We're not being told to ignore the law. We're not being told to disregard the law. We're simply being told there's another way to righteousness. God's plan of salvation is extended to all people regardless of their past, their race, or their previous beliefs, or anything else. You can make that list very, very long. God's plan of salvation is extended to everybody. And, and there, is, there is no except this person or except these types of people. There is none of those exceptions. So when we look at this, the law is still there, but righteousness, salvation comes through Jesus Christ. And it is offered to every person. So notice what he says at the end of verse 4 there, chapter 10, verse 4. For righteousness to everyone who believes. Don't overlook that. When it says everyone, when it says all, when it says whosoever, notice those words. It's for everyone. And so we read what we read. We saw what we saw in chapter 9. We saw that there's times that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. We saw that there's times that God hardens the heart of the Israelites. But this still says everyone who believes. That's important for us to recognize. You might say that that's a, that's a dichotomy. It's two things that, that don't equal each other out. God makes choices. Humans have free will. You may say those two things don't equal out. God makes them equal. And so that's something we have to recognize. Anyone who believes in Jesus is going to be saved. All right, so let's look at faith that saves. This is verse 5, uh, chapter 10, verse 5, through the rest of the chapter. Faith that saves. So as usual, Paul leans on the Old Testament because what he wants to do is show the people that's reading that this isn't something new. This isn't new information that he's just putting out there. The Old Testament has been teaching this. The Old Testament has been teaching that God deals with people based on his grace, based on their faith, not just based on works and their actions and their adherence to the law. So according to him, even the law and the prophets teaches that God always planned to work with people through faith. Um, and, and here's an important point. This is important because... We need to understand a little bit about the purpose of the law ourselves. The law doesn't just give a list, a list of requirements and prohibitions, you know, telling you what you can and can't do. The law reveals the character of the God that gave the law. That is at its very core. When God displays righteousness through the law, he is showing us his righteousness. When God shows how the law leads to a good life, he is showing his goodness. God is displaying his character in that law. And even the people, and this is the argument that Paul's making with some of these Old Testament quotes, even the people that were given the law, they knew they were supposed to obey it, but they knew they couldn't obey it on their own because that law is holy. Like the God that gave them that law, they knew that they weren't holy. They were going to have to depend on God. Even back then, they knew that. In fact, in, in verse um, 7 and 8 there, what you actually have is a... Um, a list of, or not a, not a list, but basically a group of, of quotes um, that, that became kind of a proverbial thing of what you can't do, what's impossible. In other words, the, the going up to heaven or the ascending to the abyss, they believed that that was in God's hands. They believed that it was impossible for mankind to affect that in any way. And what Paul's saying is that God has taken the impossible thing and he's made it possible through Jesus. And that's, that's, Jesus said the same thing. That's something we've got to recognize is that God is doing that. God is working these things out. And these, these are from 
from, now admittedly, Paul doesn't quote a whole Old Testament verse here. He pulls from a lot of different places to make this argument, but the point is, it is about salvation. It is about faith, not about works. And it's always been that way. God has always been dealing with people that way. Look all the way back to where, where and Paul's already pointed this out, where Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's always been the point. It's always been the way that God dealt with people is through their faith, not perfect obedience because we weren't capable of that. God didn't ask us to do something that was impossible. He did the impossible and asked us to believe it. And that's what we have to do, is understand that Jesus is the answer to that impossible question. So Paul's using these Old Testament quotes to demonstrate that God has done everything required to make the impossible possible in the work of Jesus. So the gospel is not based on the works of men, but on the work of Jesus Christ. You cannot earn your way. You can't do anything to put God in your debt. And we've got to think about what it means to work your way to salvation. If you were to work your way to salvation, that would mean that you have put God in your debt. So think about it. When you go to work tomorrow morning, tomorrow's Monday, right? We're going to go to work. We're going to work the week. At the end of that week, your boss man owes you a paycheck. You have put your boss man in debt to you. We can't even imagine saying that we have put God in debt to us. God doesn't owe us anything. He is holy. He is righteous. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us, and we can't make him owe us anything. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we work, no matter how many people we witness to, nothing that we do can make God owe us anything. Everything that he gives us is a gift. It comes from his grace. And that means undeserved favor. He is giving it to us out of His love and out of His compassion, not because He owes it to us. We have to remember that. So at the very bottom of the whole argument that, that you work your way to salvation, there's an arrogance. I'm going to do something so great that God has to reward me. In the world, that's the way things work. It is not the way that things work with God. We have to remember that. So the word is or the gospel is the word of faith proclaimed by the apostles. So notice, notice what, he, uh, what he says there in verse 8. He says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. The word of faith is that gospel. That's what's proclaimed. It says, this word is near. This word is, this word is, is you hear it. It's in your heart. You're, you're listening to it. It's being proclaimed. And this is where there is a transition from just what you have to believe to some of the things that we have to do. Okay, so if you're going to say that salvation is accomplished by human free will through, by, by believing in Jesus Christ, you've got to help us understand what that is. And so this is where this begins to transition here. This is where we begin to see that change. Verse 9 and following, they're going to be familiar to a lot of us because they're part of what we call the Romans road to salvation. And so Paul's going to be you know, giving some of the verses that people will memorize, people will quote for, you know, even up till now. And so these, these are very important. So now the gospel involves confessing Jesus Christ as our Lord. So look at verse 9 for just a minute. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it makes it abundantly clear what we have to do. Okay, so first of all, uh, we've got to confess Jesus Christ as our Lord. One of the dangers um, of becoming extremely familiar with Scripture is that you just 
you sing along, just like you do a song on the radio. Um, songs you know, maybe you hadn't paid attention to the meaning of the song in a long time. It comes on, you start singing along, and you realize, wait a minute. I don't really understand what this is about. Or, now I understand what this is about, and I'll never sing it again. When we hear these verses over and over, sometimes we forget what it says. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Does that mean that it's still our choice? Does that mean that it's still our rights? Does it mean that it's still our privileges? That we get to do what we want to do with our life? Does that, is that what that means? No, that means that He is Lord. It means that it is God's will that will rule our lives. That's what that means. Jesus Christ is Lord. So if you confess Jesus Christ, or, or confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. So there is a confession aspect, there's something that we say, and there's something that we do. Now I think it's very, very important that we recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's a stumbling block to the Jews. It was at that time because it meant that he was, he was God. It meant that he was deity. Um, and I think it would still be a stumbling block for people today that don't believe in absolute truth because when God says something is wrong, it's wrong. It doesn't matter what culture you're in. It doesn't matter what your opinion or your politics might say. Something is wrong, it's wrong. If it's right, it's right. God makes that clear and Jesus is the Lord. So the resurrection from the dead was the stumbling block for the Gentiles. So in this one little sentence here, we have the stumbling block to both the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century. Definitely something that was difficult for them. And the point is, we must accept the uncomfortable truths of the gospel. There's some part of the gospel that's going to be a stumbling block to everybody. And that's what we have to recognize, is that we still have to accept that. People have all sorts of weird ideas about life and death that make no sense. Even to this day, if you really ask people what they think happens when they die, you're going to get a multitude of answers. And most of them, they're not based on scripture. They don't make any sense. They're just ideas that they have, and it's what they believe. But what we have to basically proclaim is that the gospel takes some difficult ideas and it challenges us to accept them based on faith. So there is one God... I believe that with all of my heart. There's one God, and everyone who believes in him and confesses him will be saved. That's what the gospel is. So let's look at this for a minute. We all understand that believing in our heart leads to justification, but there's another important element to our salvation. That is this confession. So what does this mean? Um, well, he, he says right away, anybody that believes in Jesus isn't going to be put to shame. But what does it mean to confess Jesus? Well, in the church, we have this term, making a public profession of faith. Um, and the way that would work, say, in this church is if you had got saved sometime during the week or maybe even during the service, I, I got saved, I believe, in a service one night. Uh, it was a revival service, I believe I got saved, and so what I felt like I needed to do was walk down the aisle during the time of invitation and say that I was saved. So that's what we call it, making a public profession of faith. You go and you tell the church, hey, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I am a child of God from this point forward. So that's an important aspect of, of, of proclaiming, of confessing Jesus Christ. Another thing that we do is baptism. Baptism is, is proclaiming that we have identified with Jesus and we believe in his gospel. So those are two public ways that we do that. Um, but as we continue to read this passage, we're going to find out that there is... There's much, much more uh, to what's going on. So Paul makes it clear that people aren't going to know the gospel 
unless there are people preaching the gospel. So as you get a little bit further in, in chapter 10, um, he says, uh, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's verse 13. But then in verse 14, he starts asking a question. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have, not, have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So what does this mean? Proclamation doesn't end on the day that you get saved or the day that you get baptized. In other words, yes, when you get saved, you're going to proclaim Jesus. When you get baptized, you are proclaiming Jesus. But that's not the end of it. That's not the end of our public witness of Jesus Christ. We must continue to proclaim Jesus. And let me put it like this. What he's saying here is that, that, that nobody's going to become Christians if they're not hearing it proclaimed. The eternity of every person in this world depends upon believers who publicly proclaim Jesus Christ regardless of the consequences. I believe that built into God's Word is the not just implicit, but also the explicit command to proclaim Him, to tell other people about Him. And I believe that that burden is on each and every one of us. We don't get to pick and choose who knows about the faith. We tell it to everybody. Uh, we tell everybody the gospel. We tell everybody about Jesus Christ. Um, and in fact, Paul makes the, the, the statement, there's no distinction. It's not a racial, it's not a religious, there is no distinction. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. And how are they going to hear it unless we actually go out and tell them? Paul makes it clear that there's not going to be people getting saved if there's not preaching of the gospel. Let me, let me tell you, so now when we say preaching, you think about some dude like me standing up at a pulpit and, 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 and saying things until he finally lets you leave and go get lunch. But preaching the gospel is way more about our life and about our personal witness to other people. That's what real preaching the gospel is all about. Telling someone what Jesus has done in your life. Having those important conversations. So if you're a parent, those conversations would need to start with your kids. If, you're, if you have a friend that you love, that conversation needs to have with that friend. If you have extended family members that you know are not believers, that conversation needs to be had. Coworkers, whatever the, the thing, whatever the situation you're in, that conversation needs to be had. And before you say, well, if I have this conversation, I'm going to lose my job. Let me remind you, Jesus lost his life to make this gospel. He may not be too sympathetic to people that say, well, I would have told somebody about Jesus, but I'd have lost my job. God's going to provide. That is a matter of faith. That's something that we have to recognize is that God will provide. And so if we face a difficult situation and someone puts us in a, in a bind and says, well, if you talk about Jesus, you're out of here. Well, let your parting words be Jesus saves. Believe on him. Hey, if you can't do anything else, quote Romans 10, 9 and say, bye, y'all. I mean, we have to. We have to tell them about the gospel. It's the most important message anybody will ever get. So let me say it another way. Uh, throughout the history of the church, there's been at least a subtle hint that it's the responsibility of the clergy to pr proclaim the gospel. And I, I've said a bunch of times that, you know, for basically from 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., the Bible was in no language other than Latin. And so if you didn't speak Latin, you didn't know the Bible. You certainly couldn't tell other people about the Bible. 
Um, so there was more than a subtle hint, I would say, in the Catholic Church. And, and we, we, you know, now we've got this, this, this whole profession of clergy. It's kind of a, a, a whole thing where people go to a certain school and now they're clergy and they're the ones that tell you about Jesus. I think Paul would slap us in the face. I honestly believe that he would not accept that kind of standard. He told us that we confess Jesus Christ. Jesus told us, go and make disciples. People want to say, well, that was just the disciples that he was talking to. That was everybody that believed in him at the time. Do you believe in Jesus? Then go make disciples. Share the gospel. Proclaim Jesus. Proclaiming the gospel is the holy work of every believer. And let me tell you, that work is blessed. It's hard work. It's important work. But that work is blessed. God will bless us. Look, look what is, it is said there at the... Um, at the uh, um, verse 15, it says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God looks on those that proclaim the gospel as beautiful people. Even their feet. Y'all, I never really like taking my socks off. I'm not a, I don't like my feet. But God loves the feet of those that proclaim the gospel. That should tell us something. God loves even the feet of those that preach the gospel. So, it's simple. You're going to go out tomorrow, that person that you know is not a believer, you're going to tell them about the gospel, they're going to fall on their knees, they're going to confess Jesus as their Savior, and it's going to happen time and time and time again. Every time you talk about the gospel, people are just going to fall over and believe in Jesus everywhere you go. Unfortunately, no, that's a fairy tale. Um, Paul points to a guy that has to be an inspiration for all of us that tell people about the gospel and nobody ever believes. Isaiah. Isaiah had a long and, by the world standards, fruitless ministry. God blessed him. God used him. God honors him. He is in the hall of faith, no doubt about it. But let me tell you, on earth, he didn't see very many people accepting his message. He didn't see very many people listening to the warnings that God had given him. Isaiah preached and nobody listened. Isaiah called people to change and nobody changed. And that may be your lot as well. There are people who, when they preach the gospel, people, you think about Billy Graham. Every kid in a, of a certain age that knew that God was calling them to be a preacher, they practiced their, they're coming down from the altar, or they're coming down from the balconies even now. You practiced that, you thought about that, that day that you proclaimed the gospel and people just flood to the front of the church to get saved. You, you think about those things. Probably you read Jonathan Edwards and you read some of the stories. Jonathan Edwards preached this sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He had every word of it on paper. He looked down and he read it. And in those days, their churches were just a little bit different. The pews were moved in a little bit and there were columns along the edge. So there was like a walkway and then there were columns and then there were pews where people were sitting. The stories go that while he's reading this sermon to them in a monotone voice, People are like holding on and climbing on the altars and begging, what must we do to be saved? The power of God was all over that place when the gospel was being proclaimed. And I can tell you that happens. But I can tell you also there's a lot of times where you tell somebody about Jesus and they say thanks, but no thanks. Not everybody listens to the gospel. We have to understand that Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 sit side by side. There are people that will listen there are people that won't listen. There are, people, there are going to be people who have a hard heart, and there are going to be people who believe. And we have to just be faithful. 
it's not our concern who listens. We care. Boy, do we care. But we can't control that. God's in control. What we have to do is just proclaim. Our command is simple. We must proclaim the message of God and depend on Him for the response of the people. It's just that simple. So let's wrap this up. This passage makes it very clear that justification and righteousness, they don't come from works. Nothing that a person can do will save them. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we get that. That's how we get there. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. It is an incredible message because we know that we cannot do anything to save ourselves. We must be willing to share this news with everyone. You've heard so many times people say, well, if you had the cure for cancer, surely you'd go out and tell somebody. We have something greater than the cure for cancer. We have the greatest news that has ever been proclaimed in the world. People have died for this news. Jesus died to make this news. But we won't even put our jobs in jeopardy to proclaim it. We won't even make ourselves uncomfortable to proclaim it. We've got to do that work. We're all called to it. We all have to do that work. God's people will continue to proclaim that message even if it seems like no one is listening. Let me tell you, this is like one of those times in the Old Testament. This time in American history is like that because there are people faithfully proclaiming the gospel. I believe that all over the country there are people telling God's word. But there's not as many people listening anymore. There's not as many people responding. There's not as many people who think it's important to have Christian homes, to raise their children with Christian values. They just don't think that it's important anymore. We look around and we see cities full of murder. We see crime. We see corruption in our government. We, we see all kinds of terrible things spreading across our land. But Jesus isn't important to people. And let me tell you, there is no other hope for this land or any other land. The reality is, if America ceases to exist, God's plan doesn't change one iota. He moves right on. Nations have risen and fallen, and, and we're a baby nation compared to most nations. We're so young. We've not been here long. God doesn't need America to exist for His plans to occur. But we can do everything we can, not, not, not for the nation, but for the souls of the people in this nation by proclaiming the gospel. Even if it costs us, even if they don't listen, we should still do that. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time to allow us to gather together for a few minutes and look at your word. Even as we have looked at every word and we know that salvation is free, it still takes my breath away to know that you would give your son for us. Lord, I don't deserve that kind of sacrifice. None of us in here would say that we deserve that kind of sacrifice, but, but you gave freely. And Lord, we, we thank you. Lord, we depend on your salvation because we know there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And Lord, just as lost as some of us were, 
There are many in this world that are still just as lost. I pray that you help us to find the voice that it's going to take to proclaim Jesus. It, it may be a single conversation. It may be months and months of persuading. But whatever it is, for each of us, I pray that you help us to know that we have to proclaim that message. We have to say what Jesus has done in our lives. I pray that you help us to do that. We know that at the end of the day, what happens is part of your plan. But we don't presume to know your ways. We don't presume to know your plan. So I just pray that you help us to remain faithful until you make all things clear. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.